Well, are you all surviving this? Isn't it a kind of a crazy world we live in today? I, I, I escaped. I went up to northern Wisconsin the last couple of days, and there was a lot of Trump Pence signs. I don't know what that's all about. Maybe someone could fill that in, fill me in a little bit about that. I don't know. But uh, it was a real blessing to be up there. I saw very few masks, and so I felt a little safer. Uh, a guy came in to fix the copy the other day, and he wore a mask, and I said, you know, we used to shoo people walk in places and just don't say anything and wear a mask. You know, he got a little nervous, but he did fine. So if there's something wrong with the copier, it's because of me, I suppose. But uh, it's just strange, folks. It's just a little different. You know, we adapt pretty easy. I was saying in my prayer, the greater is he that is in you than he's of the world. And uh, if anybody can get through this, the Christians can. I think we ought to remember, though, that not too long in the future, the eastern sky will split open. And the Lord Jesus will come on the clouds, and we will, be, we will be together with him there to meet him in the air. Uh, that is called the rapture of the church. And all those that have been born again uh, will depart and be with him. Uh, and again, we will be with him forever. Immediately after the rapture will be the judgment seat of Christ. And so we hold to that. I used to have a big display back there, a dispensationalism, and I don't know if anybody knows where that's at, but we need to get that back up, if you would. Uh, I'm in some classes right now, and the need for dispensational theology is absolutely necessary in the days in which we live. But I want to encourage you that you have, the, uh, for many years, have had the blessing of living in America, and uh, we still should continue to celebrate it, and so I thought we would further it a little bit. You know, yesterday was the fourth, uh, but today is the fifth, but I want to continue with that theme of America, and uh, I thought it was interesting as I was reading Psalm 33, I feel like and believe that this particular psalm will help us uh, understand a little bit more of the founding fathers and what they were thinking, because many of them were biblicists. Many of them knew what the Bible was, and they followed the Bible and followed the Scriptures. And so if you look at chapter 32, or Psalm 32, the word blessed, it begins there, and he describes what it is like for somebody who has been forgiven, how he feels, and how happy he is, and how blessed he is to know that his sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and what confidence it brings to that individual so he can focus on his purpose in life and, and focus on not only uh, pleasing the Lord, but knowing that when his time comes and he goes to a funeral home, uh, that people will know that he trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And he, he has a tendency at that individual then to constantly be content and happy and blessed to know that his sins are forgiven. But if you look at verse number 12 of chapter 33, verse number 12 is a verse that we many times take out of the context and we begin to put it on things, and it's a wonderful verse. Um, But I would like to know a little bit more about it. And so I began to read a little bit. But verse number 12 again says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. And so this psalm was written by David, King David, we know this. Uh, Of course, his his kingdom began to increase. He was able to accomplish uh, many things. But one of the things that David did was he was a a great general. 
uh, in the army, and he was able to accomplish wars and was able to fight and win, and he did over the Ammonites. And so because of it, this account is, is actually written in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, 26-31. And if you read it later, you'll see that in that particular passage that the King David meant business when he took out the Ammonites. He wanted the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wanted the God of heaven to be exalted, and so he did so. And because of it, he was able to write this psalm, and he was rejoicing in it as if the God of heaven was giving him the strength. Now, of course, he desired to be able to uh, see Israel increase, of course, but he, he, he wanted to make sure that he um, praised the Lord and that would, would convey to people that if they would uh, trust the Lord and if they would follow the scriptures, that their land would also be blessed like it has here in America for all of these years. There's nothing like America. I remember being on the, on the, on the top of the American embassy the night before it was blown up, but I was on top of there, just on top of the world. I had a, a flag on my side of my arm, and uh, went down the stairs and then outside and went on to the city, and there was a place they were cooking some chicken, and so we were able to eat some chicken there. And all the people that were walking by were glancing at us soldiers standing there uh, right downtown Beirut, and uh, came up and wanted to touch the flag. Can I touch the flag on your arm? That's how much honor there was for America. And by the way, this president is not destroying that. The liberals are destroying that. And, and I'll tell you what's happening is they're trying to turn it around because they're the ones that aren't exalting the God of heaven. They want to be the God. They want to be in charge. But when you have a president stand up and say that this country is great because of the God of heaven then he's going in the right direction. And we, we, we long for that blessing again. And by the way, don't lose hope. The Spirit of God could breathe upon America one more time and push back the tide that is trying to take over. It was able to think about a little bit about that song, Turn the Tide, and maybe we can hear that um, maybe during this time uh, of the next couple of weeks and that, that Abigail has written. It's a beautiful song. But in 1832, a pastor named Samuel Francis Smith sat down on a quiet afternoon and he wrote out the words, My country, tis, tis of thee. And I thought about the words. I want to read them to you and listen to what he wrote down. He wrote, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. My native country, thee, land of the noble free, thy name I love. I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods and templed hills. My heart with rapture thrills like above. Let music swell the breeze and ring from all the trees. Sweet freedom song, let mortal song, let mortal tongues awake, let all the breath partake, let rocks their silence break, the sound prolong. And in his last stanza, he wrote, Our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. It's interesting because we think about that. It's a long, long time ago. At a reunion of a, fa a famous classmate uh, in 1829, and I'll just give you this, I'll just read it to you, of Harvard College, one of its members referred to his classmate like this. 
He said, and there's a nice youngster of excellent pith. Fate tried to conceal him by naming him Smith. But he shouted a song for the brave and the free. Just read on his medal, my country, tis of thee. It was Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes who read that poem. And it was his friend, his classmate, Samuel Francis Smith, who wrote, my country, tis of thee. He was just a little Boston boy born under the sound of the Old North Church bell chimes on October 21st, 1808. And after being graduated from Harvard, he began to study for the ministry. And it was while he was at Andover Newton Theological Seminary in February 32, he wrote that hymn. He was a godly person. He was seeking the Lord. He desired to be able to convey that truth of, of the scriptures and map it into our country and be able to tell people, and they've sung it all these years, uh, a sweet land of liberty. And he had that understanding within his heart. I was thinking about this, that this commemorating of this, of this particular Independence Day, you know, because ever since I was a little boy, we've done this. I remember coming and, and having, when I was a little guy, firecrackers and, and we'd have uh, sparklers and, and my dad would actually tie a firecracker um, upside down to his, to his sparkler. And so he would wait till I got just about to the end, and then he'd throw it in the air, and it would, it would blow up, you know? That was where our fireworks back then, you know? And for the life of me, I sat there for years. I took that sparker, and I'd throw it to the ground. I'd throw it in the air and try to make it pop, and it never would do it. And then I understood what my dad was doing. And uh, so I remember years ago going to the park. We missed the fireworks last night. We headed back. Uh, early last evening, about 7 o'clock, got on the highway. We saw different places along the way, like Westfield and Portage and, and some of the other places uh, up north were having their fireworks. And so we got to see a little bit of it. But uh, many of you went last night, and you were able to go ooh and go ah. And, you know, And it's all because of independence. But there is a prerequisite to this independence. There is something that had to take place prior to us having this land that's been so blessed all of these years that we're about ready to lose, by the way, folks. I never thought I'd say that. I remember sitting under preachers all these years. In 1976, I was in this city, and we went out along the, the bus ministries, and we went out and gave donuts away, and I had my, my pockets full of bubble gum to try to get kids to come in. 63, 65 kids on a bus, bringing them in, and we had four buses. We come into a, a little church not too far from here, and I remember they were giving away a Cadillac. Can you believe that? It was a 76 Cadillac, 1976, and they painted it red, white, and blue. I'm so glad I didn't win that Cadillac. <laughs> that would have been terrible. You know, the biggest thing I won was, when I was a little boy, I won some rabbits, you know, and my dad had to build a little pen for them, you know, and rabbits kind of get weird, and they beat out the wall, and they got loose, and they were underneath the porch down the road, and I think we were eight or nine years old when he won those things. But I was so glad I didn't win that Cadillac. There's a big celebration. The pastor said, if we have 400, I'll preach from the roof. We had 400, and he preached from the roof. We had to guard it at night. And I remember all of this going on, and I was thinking, wow, 1976, we have this freedom. How many years ago has that been? Many, many, many years ago. But we still live in the same country, and I'm in the same city. Now I'm pastoring in this city. And what a blessing it is. But I want to convey to you that this wonderful truth of Independence Day was done, but there was a prerequisite to it, and many men suffered because of it. 
just to see to it that we've had. And ever since then, men have given their lives so that we could have the freedom we have today. I've been in other countries where you have to stop at a checkpoint and give out some papers and you can't go from place to place. And in America, I get in my car now, I can drive all the way to California and I'd have anybody stop me. I could see all these sights and I'd probably have to wear a mask and stay six feet away from the guy if he pulled me over because I was going too fast. But I, but I would actually be able to do that and so could you. In this wonderful land we live in called America. Sweet land of liberty. But what did it take to get us here? I think for what it's worth, I want to give to you a little bit of a history lesson. And then I'll try to the best I can to convey the scriptures to you. What happened to the 56 men who signed this Declaration of Independence? For the record, here's a portrait of the men who pledged our lives and our fortunes and, our, and their sacred honor, of course, for the liberty we have so many years ago. 56 men from each of the original 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence, July 4th. 1776. And let me tell you something, folks. I'm going to read this to you. And there's lots of things I could actually bring to you. But I want to read to you and give to you what I believe are some of the most important parts of the story. Nine of the signers were immigrants. Two were brothers and two were cousins. One was an orphan. The average age of the signers was 45, with Benjamin Franklin being the oldest. 70 years of age. The youngest was Thomas Lynch, Jr. of South Carolina. He was 27 years of age. 18 of the signers were merchants or businessmen. 14 were farmers. And four men were doctors. 22 were lawyers, although William Hooper of North Carolina was disbarred when he spoke against the king. Nine were judges. Stephen Hopkins had been governor of Rhode Island And 42 signers had served in the colonial legislatures. John Witherspoon of New Jersey was the only active clergyman. And whenever he would attend the meetings, he would wear his pontificals, they call it, to every session. And almost all were Protestant. Charles Carroll was the only Roman Catholic. Seven of the signers were educated at Harvard, four at Yale, four at William Mary, three at Princeton. Witherspoon was the president of Princeton, and George Wythe, or Wythe, was the professor, professor at William and Mary. The students included the Declaration's signer, Thomas Jefferson. Seventeen signers fought the American Revolutionary War. Thomas Nelson was a colonel in the 2nd Virginia Regiment, and then commanded the Virginia Military Forces at the Battle of Yorktown. William Whipple served with the New Hampshire Militia and was the commanding officer in the decisive Saratoga Campaign. Oliver Wolcott, he led the Connecticut Regiment sent for the defense of New York and commanded a brigade of militia and took part in the defeat of General Burgoyne. Caesar Rodney, we don't talk about him. He was a major general in Delaware uh, militia. And by the way, we know that Paul Revere did a midnight ride, but so did did Caesar Rodney. And Caesar Rodney actually rode his horse over 
through the night, 80 miles, just to be there. And he actually cast the decisive vote in the Declaration of Independence. He had facial cancer. He wore a mask because he didn't want people to see his cancer. Didn't want to scare people. Interesting how he'd be politically correct today, not intentionally. John Hancock held the same rank in the Massachusetts militia. The British captured five signers during the war. Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward, and Arthur Middleton were captured at the Battle of Charleston in 1780. George Walton was wounded and captured at the Battle of Savannah. Richard Stockton of New Jersey never recovered from his incarceration and was handed to the British loyalist. He died in 1781, just a few years after he signed the Constitution or signed the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Keenan, McKeenan, or McKean of Delaware wrote John Adams that he was hunted like a fox by the enemy, compelled to remove my family five times in a few months. Abraham Clark of New Jersey had two of his sons captured by the British during the war. Eleven signers had their homes and property destroyed. Francis Lewis New York, uh, New York, of New York, home, or his New York home was razed, that means destroyed, and his wife taken prisoner. John Hart's farm and mills were destroyed when the British invaded New Jersey. And he died while fleeing the capture. Carter and Braxton and Nelson both of or Carter Braxton and Nelson both of Virginia lent large sums of personal fortunes to support the war effort and never were repaid. Fifteen of the signers participated in their state's constitutional conventions. Six: Roger Sherman, uh, Robert Morris, Franklin, uh, George Clymer, uh, James Wilson, and George Reed signed the U.S. Constitution. But after the Revolution, 13 signers were to become governors then. 18 served in their state's legislatures. 16 became state and federal judges. 7 became members of the U.S. House of Representatives. 6 became U.S. Senators. James Wilson and Samuel Chase became Supreme Court Justices. Jefferson, Adams, and Elridge, Jerry, each became Vice President. Adams, and Jefferson later became presidents. Five signers played major roles in the establishment of colleges and universities after their signing. Franklin and the University of Pennsylvania, Jefferson and the University of Virginia, Benjamin Rush and Dickinson College, Lewis Morris and New York University, and George Walton and the University of Georgia. Adams, Jefferson, and Carroll were the longest surviving signers. Now listen, Adams and Jefferson both died on July 4th, 1826. They're the only ones that were presidents. Fifty years after their signing, they both died on the same day. It's incredible. Just incredible. You know, you don't get this in the schools anymore. Used to. Used to have to say the president's. Who were they? Some little children, homeschoolers, really get into it. They find out where they lived and what they did and how many children they had and how long that they served and what happened to them. And some of that's been gone in our, our country. Except if you've been taught in a good Christian school or at a homeschool, you've been taught, at least 
some of the homeschools. So the 50 years of the Declaration of Independence. Carroll was, was the last signer, and he died in 1832 at the age of 95. In the same year Samuel Francis Smith wrote, the beautiful song, My Country Tis of the Sweet Land of Liberty. As we think about these men, just for a moment, and I brought you to the place now where you understand a little bit more of those that signed the Declaration of Independence. But there are four things that these men had, I believe, that come from the text, that they had a burning desire inside of them that caused them to, to, to continue on. And I really believe what they had was eternity in their hearts. They knew that it was just a temporary thing, but we needed a place that we could actually come and gather so, so we could live peaceable lives and so we could raise our children so they knew who God was and they could honor the God of heaven and worship him. There was a desire among the Israelites in the days you could have old. You can remember how they longed to be they had that freedom when they were in, in captivity for all of those 400 years. But it's amazing to me that these men had some of that same burning desire to honor and to worship God, to be able to do what we're doing today. That was inside of them. They had a passion that came, I really believe, from the Lord. So there are four main views uh, that the Founding Fathers had that I want to give to you out of this text in Psalm 33. I believe the first thing is that they had a proper view of the adoration toward God. They had a healthy fear of God. They had a reverence for God. I was dealing with Wednesday nights with the fruit of the Spirit, and we were talking about gentleness as one of the fruits or the fruit uh, of gentleness and having that in your life. And as I was looking up the word and studying the word on Wednesday night, there was some of the commentators were saying that this word gentleness has within it an understanding of reverence. That if we have the Lord Jesus Christ living within us, that we will be gentle. That's why they came up with gentlemen. That particular word. When I was in the Marines, they didn't like that word at all. I walked, I walked behind some men one time and I said, excuse me, gentlemen. They said, don't you call me a gentleman. You know, I don't have any desire to be reverent toward anything. You know, those were the drill instructors of the day. But I think it's interesting as we think about this because these men had a, a desire to, to serve the Lord and to look toward him. Look what it says in verse number one. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely. That's suitable. It, it's a word that means beautiful for the upright. And it, it is for, for those that actually are serving the Lord. And it's, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is for us to rejoice in the Lord. You ever talk to someone, they're always saying, well, bless the Lord, I'm so glad. Well, God's been so good, he's been good to me. And they constantly praise the Lord all the time. That's attractive. Look at verse number two, praise the Lord with harp and sing unto him with psaltery. Is that how you say that word? Yeah, yeah. give me an A on that one. And an instrument of ten strings. And sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud voice. What a blessing it is to see someone rejoice in the Lord. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. You, you know, I think about him a lot of times because he, he wrote that song and he had a patch over his eye. He had lost one of his eyes through cancer, but yet, yet he wrote a song, Rejoice in the Lord. I think it's interesting as we think about this because the question is, what or whom do we adore? 
So it is the chief joy of the upright, I know that, and it is the highest duty of the upright. It is a moral task of the upright that they would rejoice and, and, and bring their attention toward the Lord. The freedom to assemble and worship is one of our most precious rights, isn't it? And one we so often take for granted, and yet the desire burned brightly in the hearts of every early pilgrim and every determined patriot. Our nation was built on the backs of these soldiers of freedom. And unfortunately, we have for the most part lost the zeal for God and country. And it is too often replaced with the worship of money. Some are working today, thinking they have to work. No, you don't have to work on Sunday. Whenever I got a job, I'd say, you know, I can work all the time here, and I can do, I'll do the best. I'll work. I'll... But I'm not going to work on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We don't talk about that. You think, you know, even saying it, people say, well, that's not politically correct today. You've got to be careful. You might hurt someone's feelings. Tell that to God when he said we're supposed to rest one day a week. And take care of our families that one day and focus on him and worship him. Isn't he worthy of that? You've been sucking his air all week. Don't you think you can give him one day? He's been keeping your heart going all week long. And all he wants is just that one day for you to rest and look toward him and honor him and worship him. I think it's enough. I think it's too much. John Adams said this, It is the duty of all men in society publicly And at stated seasons, to worship the supreme being, the great creator and preserver of the universe. And no subject shall hurt, molest, or or restrain in his person, liberty, or estate. For worshiping God in the manner most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience, or for his religious profession or sentiments, provided he doth not disturb the public peace or obstruct others in their religious worship. John Adams said that. I think it's interesting because we sometimes kind of shy back from the government these days because we think we need to follow every single rule and every single little ordinance to the place of hurting our worship. Beware, dear friend, we are being deceived. And I don't mean to start up anything and cause you to feel angry toward me. But I will not be deceived. God is never mocked. God is never mocked. Interesting when we think about this, because George Washington said this to the Quakers, the annual meeting of the Quakers in 1789. He said, The liberty enjoyed by the people of these states of worshiping Almighty God agreeably to their conscience is not only among the choicest of their blessings, but also their rights. John Hancock, who was the first to sign the Declaration, had been president of the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts for a year before when he issued the proclamation calling the day of public humiliation, fasting and prayer, referring to that God who rules in the armies in heaven and without whose blessings the best human counsels are but foolish and all created power. Vanity. Can I tell you something? Created power is vanity. I was talking about leadership a little bit the other day. I was talking to some of my some of my nephews, and I was talking about how that there are positional leaders and then there are real leaders. There's two different types of leaders. That positional leaders can only follow, only only cause positional people to follow them. 
And it seems like that's what we have in the White House. It seems like all we have is positional people. If I just get that position, then I can lead positional people. They can't lead people only if they're in a position. Interesting how that these men had an incredible understanding that created power is only vanity. And every power comes from God. Let me make a declaration. When you see a police officer, you need to go shake his hand. He may not do it because he may be wearing a mask, but he's supposed to. He's told to do that. But every single police officer in this city needs us to hug him and say, keep going. That makes you mad. I'm sorry. Interesting, an American needs to return to the proper view of adoration toward God. Amen? And if we do not, we'll be cursed like other nations. What a terrible thing to think about that when it comes to America. Oh, if America would just turn back to God, sincerely, that we'd sit down with tears in our eyes and humbly weep before God and say, Dear God, bless us one more time. He would do it. This sweet land of liberty. The second thing I see here in verse 4 and 5, they had a proper view of the inspiration of the Scriptures. Because he says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his workers are done in truth. He loveth, loves righteousness and judgment, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So what is their view of the Scriptures? What is your view of the Scriptures? Do you have the Bible with you today? Do you love your Bible? I was sitting up, enjoying some time with the family, and everybody was hot. How many were hot the last couple of days? You know? And so when they do that, they go into these air-conditioned homes. And so it seemed like everybody was doing everything else. And, and uh, so I had a little me time with God, and I was able to take out my Bible and, and take out the notes that I was going to preach this morning and be able to look them over. And I'm like, this is so super nice, all this quietness, and all of a sudden... What's that? I open the door, and there's Graham. You know, can I come in, Grandpa? Yeah, come on in. I started reading. He's sitting there. All of a sudden, he goes, "Can I go out, Grandpa?" So I open the door. So I started studying again. All of a sudden, can I come in, Grandpa? So we're gonna play a little game. You know what I was thinking? Wednesday night sermon on gentleness. Yeah, long suffering. I said, "Come on in, buddy. Did you want something to drink?" He's like, what's going on with Grandpa? He's super nice to me. You know. But I was thinking about how that it's a special thing to have your Bible. I've gone through several of them. But it, it means a lot to me. And I believe your Bible means a lot to you. Many of you grabbed it today as you were heading to church. That you could have the Bible, the proper view of the inspiration of the Scriptures. The Bible says in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is Perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Acts chapter 19, verse number 20 reads this way. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It's interesting, Psalm 33, 4 says it here. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and judgment. I think about how the Bible says here that the word of God is right. So that is counsel or command. In governing the world, it will always be right and true. When we go back to the scriptures, the word of God is done in truth. That is, it is effective in its execution. The word of God pierces the heart. 
And every time a verse comes to your, to your mind, from out of your heart, you begin to say, well, I know that verse. God is trying to lead you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to guide you because he knows that the word of God is truth. So that is that it's effective in execution. The word of the Lord is right. Someone said this in their commentary. He is infinitely wise and can make no mistakes, and all his works are done in truth. All the words, laws, promises, and threatenings of God are perfectly true and just. The dispensations of his province, of his providence and mercy are equally so. When he rewards or punishes, it is according to truth and justice. John Jay, the original chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, said this. Now listen to me. He's on, he's the main guy in the area of the justice of our country. And this is what he said. The Bible is the best of all books. For it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your lives by its precepts. Pretty powerful. Noel Webster said this, and of course he was no ignorant individual. He said this, The moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all of our civil constitutions and laws. And all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice and crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, war, proceed from despising and neglecting the precepts contained in the scriptures. So it is the scriptures we need to turn to in these days that will help us. In closing, I think the third thing, let me give you two more points. Let me just give you a few more to think about. In verses 6 through 12, they had the proper view of creation of the universe. If we look at the verses, and the verses say here, verse number 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And it goes on talking about how God created everything, and he is the sustainer of everything. The Bible says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That points everything back to God. I think we go back to understanding this, that these men that founded our land and that governed our land in the beginning, they knew that if a country would come together like this and we would take the scriptures out of it, that it would fall apart. That's what's happening. And, and, and shame on a mayor who would make rules and regulations contrary to this book. I'm not trying to cause problems today, but our governor and our mayor need to look to the scriptures. If Scott Walker were in place today, he would be looking to the scriptures for help. He'd be calling upon God for help. But not this governor. He needs to do a little history lesson with me. Just me and him. It's an invitation, governor. If you come, I'll sit with you and talk to you about our country. We'll talk about real men and how they had a... By the way, you're not a real man until you bow to God of, the God of heaven. Until you've come to that place where you said, I I can't do it myself. I need the God of heaven to help me. I need to move on. George Washington, often called the father of our country, was also a strong Bible-believing Christian and a literal when it came to evolution or creationism. 
Among other things, he once commented, by, by, this is what he said, a reasoning, be, a reasoning being would lose his reason in attempting to, to account for the great phenomenon of nature had he not a supreme being to refer to. And well has it been said that if there be, had been no God, mankind would have been obligated to imagine one. That's what George Washington said. Dr. Henry Morris, many of you read him. I appreciate, I've been able to get a lot of his library from, from Edmund Rowe. And he wrote this. In fact, all the signers of the Declaration of Independence and delegates of the Constitutional Convention, as well as the delegates of the various sessions of the Continental Congress, at least so far as known, were men who believed in God and the special creation of the world and mankind. They had a high view of God. And they had a high view of man. Nearly were all members of Christian churches and believed that the Bible to be the inspired word of God. And so this has been true of their followers, uh, 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 of their forebears as well. In colonial times, the Bible was the primary tool in the educational process. In fact, according to the Columbia University professor, Dr. Lawrence Kremen, The Bible was the single most primary source for the intellectual history of colonial America. For their knowledge of the Bible, a highly literate, creative people emerged. Their wise system of education was later replaced with a man-centered system in which would cause a steady decline in literacy and creativity. So about all gone. So now we have people sitting down imagining things and writing on walls that people worked hard for, thinking that it's art. That's not art on State Street. That's rebellion. So no wonder the evolutionary historian Gilman Ostrander in the history of the rise of evolution in this country started out by saying this. He said this, and this was a heathen. He said, American na- the American nation has been founded by intellectuals who had accepted a worldview that was based upon biblical authority. Yes, they were. They believed in Newton's science. Yes, they did. They had assumed that the God created the earth and all life upon it at the time of creation and had continued without change thereafter. And Adam and Eve were God's final creations, and all of mankind descended from them. Pretty powerful. Many more of the founding fathers could be quoted as similar effect. Men such as John Adams and Roger, Roger Sherman and Alexander Hamilton and uh, Patrick Henry and Governor Morris and Samuel Adams and George Mason and others. The same is true of the great uh, colonial leaders such as Roger Williams and William Penn and Jonathan Edwards and John Withrop and Thomas Hooker and many others, and I could go on and on and on and tell you that these men not only had a, a, a high view of God, but he believed God created men. And he believed that he did it in six days. Literal creation. And so the answer is not bigger buildings, friend. And the answer is not more teachers. The answer is that we would turn back to the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
for the Lord Jesus Christ and shame on the public school system who has denied the truth and hidden our children. And they talk about child abuse. They have. I think it's important for me to close with the proper view of salvation. Beginning at verse number 13 all the way to verse number 22. The Lord looks from heaven and beholds all the sons of men. And, and from the place of his habitation, he looked upon the inhabitants of the earth, and he fashioned their hearts alike, and he considered their works. There is no king saved by a multitude of hosts. And by the way, there's no help for Donald Trump unless God helps him. Yes. And I'll tell you what, America is in, is in a real dilemma if the Democrats get in, tra- in charge. I say we shouldn't get political from the pulpit. They don't ever do it. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And a horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall, be, shall, neither shall he deliver any of his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him and upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. And our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted In his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. What a powerful passage. Now think about this in closing. All wise, all seeing, all mighty, all saying, all saving. That's our God. So he is our only help. He's our true hope. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name in heaven whereby we must be saved. And then we go on to see this. Consider... Also, the testimony of John Jay, the chief, remember, the first chief justice of the United States in the Supreme Court. And this is what he said in an address to the American Bible Society, which he was then the president of. He said this, the Bible will also inform them that our gracious creator has provided for us a redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that this redeemer was has made atonement for the sins of the whole world and has opened up a way for our redemption and our salvation. It's pretty powerful. That's that's our country. That's that's the way it used to be. But you know what? It can be that way again. And by the way, don't lose heart because I believe that God can actually turn this all around. I believe he will. I don't think that that, that we're going to burn up because of global warming. We've got a thousand years to worship him on this earth. And he just may turn things right around and bless us again. But the main thing is that we understand this. Understand this, that God did bless America all of these years. And the reason he did was because of the scriptures and men who held to the scriptures. And so why is it that we would take him out of the public? It hurt our hearts yesterday as we were standing and watching this small town called Jump River. Sometimes there'd be a thousand people will ascend onto that place. Three hundred people in that community, but all these people come so they want, they wanted to see a parade. I saw families lined up in chairs, and they were planning it the night before they came, and their campers came because they were looking forward to having this wonderful parade. And then the soldiers came down carrying the American flag, and of course that day. when they got done singing the national anthem, a local lady sang it, and I, I, I gave my Marine Corps bark, you know. And I wanted to do it during it, but I said, no, settle down, settle down. And right at the end, ah! 
And then I looked at my wife, and she's got tears coming up. I looked to my left, and my, my son, who was in the Air Force, and he was in munitions and was in Iraq a couple of times, he had tears in his eyes. Do you know why? Because we feel a little bit like we're losing this thing. Yes. And if we're not careful, we will. But if my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, I'll heal their land. And listen to me, you that are listening to me and you think I'm taking that out of context, go back to school and stay there. That's the power of the living God. If we humble our hearts, he will hear and he will heal our land. And he can. Let's stop thinking about ourselves during this time. Let's start thinking about the next generation. What can we do? Can we start something here at Grace that will help people through this difficult time? Why not use the church house for something great? Uh, I think we already are. Let every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. I went a little longer than I should have. Maybe your heart is tender this morning. You say, Pastor, that, that spoke to my heart and I, I believe... I know I'm a Christian. I believe I am. I trusted Jesus as my Savior, but there's something more I must do. I believe God's tugging at my heart to do something. Maybe it's missions. Maybe it's just stepping up and writing or saying something or being a voice in our community, but you believe God is drawing you and leading you, then say yes to him today. That's between you and God. And maybe you just want to come down here at the old-fashioned altar and say, Lord, here I am. I understand where we were. And I see where we're going. It doesn't look good. And you'd say, Lord, here I am. Would you help me to be what I should be? To be strong? Help this country? And maybe it would be that you would come down the aisle because you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior. You've never said yes to him. And you never opened your heart to him. But today would be the day. Oh, you've known of Jesus for many years. But you've never opened the door of your heart. Maybe you would do that today. Just come. Someone will show you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's have an invitation. Why don't you stand right where you are? This morning, if God's working in your heart, you can come. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I'm done praying, the piano will begin playing, and so also will the invitation. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in Jesus' name. Amen. stanza. If you need to come, why don't you come?
Thank you, Carol. All right. You can be seated if you would. I, I need to do something. I need to break the rules or something here. Go ahead and be seated if you would. We're going to take up an offering. Uh, this is for Monsi and Mara. You can go ahead and be seated. If you. Uh, I was thinking about how that they've been through this difficulty with their little, the little boy, little, little uh, Monty Jr. And uh, he's doing better, by the way. Um, and Mom is doing better. But we need to take up an offering. 